This morning's sermon passage is Matthew chapter 8. And in that chapter we will be looking at verses 5 to 17. Again, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 17. This is a a larger portion of Scripture than we normally do, and yet I think it serves the purpose. We, in this passage, get to see two examples, two specific examples of Jesus healing the way that he heals, the power that he has to heal. And so it's important for us to look carefully at these verses this morning and to consider what they truly mean for us. Again, verses, excuse me, verse, uh, chapter 8, verses 5 to 17. This is God's word. Listen to it. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses... And bore our diseases. Let us pray. Gracious God, again and again, we are confronted with the power of your word. We are confronted, Lord, with the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. And in this morning's passage, dear Lord, we see the power of his word. His ability, Lord, to heal at great distance. His ability, dear Lord, by the power of his word to drive out demons. We pray, Lord, that you would cause our hearts not to flee from the Lord Jesus at his word, but to bow humbly before him because of his word and because of its power. We ask, dear Lord, that you would make us humble even as the centurion was humble. And that we, O Lord, would rejoice in the healing that Jesus' words bring. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in this passage, as I have said, Matthew tells us of two more of Jesus' healings. He gives two specific uh, uh, detailed narratives of Jesus healing uh, those who are sick. And then in uh, verse 16, he does a very quick overview. He, he, He quickly talks about a number of people that Jesus healed. A number of people that Jesus freed from demonic oppression and possession. 
Well, each of these healings tells us something more about Jesus Christ. In last week's passage, we talked about what it meant for Jesus to cleanse this leper from this leprosy, from that condition which made him unclean and unable uh, even to be around the people of God, much less enter into the temple of God. With the healing of the Roman centurion's servant, Jesus demonstrates that he is the long-promised, the long-awaited son of Abraham. You remember God promised Abraham, he promised him in numerous occasions back in the early chapters of Genesis that he would produce for him a seed, an offspring, who would be a blessing not only to the people of Israel, but to the nations. And again and again in the Old Testament, you see the the hope of the people of Israel as as leader after leader is raised up and the people begin to hope that this is the the long-awaited promised son of Abraham who will be a blessing. You see it again with with David. You see it with Solomon. And yet both of these men and every other leader whom God raised up failed his people miserably. Sinned against God in grievous ways. But in this passage, Matthew shows us that Jesus Christ is that promised son of Abraham, that long-awaited seed of Abraham who has come and who does what no other man has been able to do. And then we see with the healing of Peter's mother-in-law that Jesus shows that God's mercy, it's not only poured out among the Gentiles, among the nations, but he still has mercy on his own people, on the Jewish people. It still flows out to people through covenant families. What a great blessing and a benefit it was to Peter's mother-in-law that Peter was there and that Jesus came and visited Peter. And because of that, his mother-in-law was healed. Well, all of these acts of healing, as well as the the many healings that Jesus performs that are grouped together in verse 16, all of these acts of healing are acts of mercy on Jesus' part. But according to Matthew, they serve an even greater purpose. Even more than just healing these people from their physical maladies, they serve a greater purpose. To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Jesus' miraculous healings were not an end in of themselves. It was not the ultimate purpose that these people would simply be able to walk again or be freed from some sort of terrible fever. It was not the ultimate purpose for Jesus' healings. The final goal of healing the paralyzed servant, of healing Peter's mother-in-law from her fever, was for this reason. To decisively and conclusively demonstrate that Jesus is God in the flesh. That Jesus is Emmanuel, as he is described in chapter 1 of Matthew. That Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Indeed, Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And so I ask you to consider this as we work our way through these verses. Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham who blesses the nations by healing them, by healing them from sin. Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham who blesses the nations by healing them from sin. I've divided this passage into three sections. Verses 5 to 13, children from stones. Verses 14 and 15, the blessings on the family. And verses 16 and 17, the purpose of Jesus' ministry. Again, 5 to 13, children from stones. 14 and 15, blessings on the family. And 16 and 17, the purpose of Jesus' ministry. Let's look at these, uh, first, this first large group of verses, verses 5 to 13. 
Having cleansed the man from his leprosy after coming down from the mountain, Jesus made his way to a nearby town, nearby Capernaum. This was on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And upon entering this town, upon entering Capernaum, a Roman centurion approaches Jesus and he asked him for help. He said in verse 6, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now you're probably aware of this. Rome was not looked upon favorably by Jews at that time. Rome was an occupying force. I know probably many of you at least were keeping track of of the withdrawal of the so-called combat troops from Iraq this week. And it was ironic to me in a sad way uh, that the Iraqi people who four or five years ago lamented the fact that Americans were on their soil occupying their land are now lamenting the fact that the Americans are leaving Four or five years ago, the Iraqis did not want Americans there. They did not greet them as liberators. They, they, they saw them as occupiers. And they were unwelcome. And yet last week, they did not want them to leave. Well, if you take the sentiments of the Iraqi people four or five years ago and multiply them tenfold or twentyfold, then you have a sense for how the Jewish people felt about the Roman army occupying their land. Rome was not there. Uh, in order to uh, uh, stabilize the country, in order to liberate them from some sort of dictator. Rome was there because Israel was a a strategic portion of land for them. It was a crossroads. If you wanted to get to Africa from Europe by land, you went through Israel. If you wanted to make your way into Southwest Asia from Europe, or vice versa, from Southwest Asia up to Europe, you had to go through Israel or near Israel. And the same could be said of even even of, of, of... of Northwest Asia. Israel was a very strategic location. It was a bottleneck in many ways, and there were good, uh, uh, reliable roadways that passed through. And so Rome, in a very strategic sense, in a very uh, uh, strategic way, they had to have an overland route for their troops to make it into northern Africa. Israel is the most logic way for that. They didn't care about the people of Israel. They weren't there to alleviate them from suffering. They wanted the land. They wanted the land. And so a centurion in the Roman army would not have been held in high regard by the people of Israel. Not only were centurions uh, these officers in occupying forces, but the Romans were pagans. They worshipped pagan gods. They were were unclean. And later on, the Roman army would defile the temple of God's people. So this centurion would have been looked upon as unclean by uh, the Jewish people. He would have been as unclean uh, as that leper whom Jesus cleansed in those early verses of chapter 8. But all of this, and we can, we can be sure that the centurion is aware of these sentiments, but all of this didn't uh, dissuade him, it didn't prevent him from approaching Jesus Christ and asking for help. When he told Jesus about his servant who was lying paralyzed, in verse 7 Jesus simply said, I will come and heal him. Immediately. Jesus says, I will come and heal him without regard to the fact that entering a Gentile's home would make him unclean if he were an ordinary Jewish person. Now it didn't matter to the centurion how he might be regarded by Jesus, and it mattered even less to Jesus that this man was a Gentile and an officer in the Roman army. He was willing to go there immediately and heal this man. But then you see the centurion responding. When Jesus says, I will go and I will heal him, how does the centurion respond? He responds with true humility here. In verse 8, he says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. Only say the word, 
he says. This is a remarkable display of humility. This is a man who was a commander uh, in the Roman army of between 800, uh, excuse me, 80 and 100 men. He is a career uh, soldier. He has the authority of the, the Roman Empire behind him, backing him. And so he makes commands. And people listen to him. He's used to getting his way. And yet, what does he do? He humbly comes before the Lord. He says, I am not worthy of having you in my house. All you have to do is speak. Speak from a distance. Speak your word of power. And my servant will be healed. Well, the centurion also displayed a profound understanding of Jesus' authority when he spoke in verse 9. He said, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes. And to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, Do this. And he does it. Now, the centurion's experience in the Roman army, it gave him an understanding of authority. He had this hierarchy of authority over him. Indeed, uh, at the top of that pyramid of hier- the hierarchy there was the Roman emperor himself. And the centurion understands that when he speaks, when he gives an order, that it, he can drive it all the way up to the emperor to have it backed up if he needs to do that. And so this experience of his own as a soldier and as an officer, as a, as a commander of men, helps him to understand Jesus' own authority. And yet we see in his, in his uh, disposition toward Jesus, in the way that he treats him, in the way that he speaks to him, he understands that Jesus' authority is far greater than his own. He understands that Jesus' authority is not derived from men, but it comes from God himself. And he also knows this. He knows that Jesus does not need to be there in person to heal his servant. He doesn't need to be there. Now, this was not generally regarded as, as the case in those days. There were, there were plenty of people. You, we have it today. This is not uh, only an ancient phenomenon. There were plenty of people back then who went around doing magical tricks. But to do something from a great distance, to do something over a, a wide range, uh, was considered uh, only something that the divine could do. Only something that God himself was capable of doing. And so even among pagans... There was an understanding that this would have been a a remarkable uh, achievement by Jesus. So it is to Jesus' own divine authority that this centurion appeals. And how does Jesus respond? What is his response? He says in verse 10, it says in verse 10, When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel... Have I found such faith? Jesus is amazed. Jesus is astonished. He has not encountered this kind of faith, even among the very people, his own people, who should have this kind of faith in him. Now these words that Jesus speaks here, I've not found such faith in Israel, these words would have been astonishing to the crowds who followed Jesus. Jesus has spent his earthly life in Israel, and yet a Gentile who displays faith in a way that his people have never had He's amazed by it. William Hendrickson says that Jesus revealed that the faith of this man of Gentile origin surpassed in excellence anything he had found, even among the Jews, in spite of the latter's privileges, in spite of the Jews' privileges of being the people of God. He had not found this kind of faith among them. 
The Jews had every privilege as God's people. And yet, for the most part, they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. There was faith among the Jewish people. There was faith. But it's often described by Jesus as being of little faith. He says, you people of little faith. He says this again and again. He, did it back in, he said it back in chapter 6, verse 30, and he will say it again throughout the Gospels. They had faith, but it was little faith. It was weak faith. And in many cases, there was no faith among the Jews in their Messiah. Now, the next words of Jesus come out as a very stern warning to the Jewish people. He says, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, what Jesus speaks of here, is damnation. This is hell. This is the everlasting fire of destruction. And Jesus says to his own people, to the people who have had this great privilege of being the sons of God, considered to be the very, the very sons of God, he says some of them, many of them, will be thrown into the outer darkness. Well, as we discovered when we worked through the book of Ruth uh, late last year, it has always been a part of God's plan to bring those who are outside God's people into God's people. Now, you remember Ruth, of course, was... Uh, from Moab. She was a Moabitess. This was a country that was hated by Israel. And yet, what did God do with, with Ruth? He grafted her into God's people. He brought her in. And she was privileged to become the great-grandmother of David. And even more so, she was privileged to be an ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. Well, God will continue to bring people in uh, from outside Israel. And what's more, being born as a, a citizen of Israel does not guarantee that a person has eternal life. There's no guarantee here. The prerequisite for salvation for Jew and for Gentile is faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is what is required. And it doesn't matter whose family you are a member of. It doesn't matter if you were born a Jew if you were born an Orthodox Presbyterian, faith in Jesus Christ is the only way in which you will be saved. But if you do believe, what does Jesus say? If you do believe in him, what does he say? He says you will be gathered together with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and you will celebrate at the great marriage feast of the Lamb. You will celebrate. You, you will be there when God's own people, those whom he called out, might not be there. Well, back in chapter 3, verse 9 of, of Matthew's Gospel, John the Baptist said this. He said, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. John was speaking to the Pharisees. He was speaking to the scribes. He was speaking to the religious leaders of Israel. And he was saying, Do not presume. But simply because you have Abraham as your father in the flesh, that you will be saved. God can raise up from these stones his own children. And that is precisely what God is doing with this Roman centurion. He is raising up a stone and making him his son. 
And Jesus' death and resurrection. His death on the cross and his triumph over death and being raised from the dead, Jesus will bring Gentiles. He'll bring them in. He'll bring us in to be adopted as God's children. He will fling the doors wide open. And he will invite us in to that great feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, verse 13 says, And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. It was not the servant's faith that resulted in his healing. It was the master's faith in Jesus Christ that brought about, that, that was the catalyst, in a sense, for the healing of this servant. And how does Jesus heal him? He heals him with a word. Go, let it be done for you. This is how Jesus works, by his word. That same word which created the heavens and the earth healed this man, raised him up from a position of of being paralyzed to be able to walk once again. Well, just as the centurion's faith had an impact on his servant, your faith in Jesus Christ can be a blessing to people around you. Have you ever thought about that? Your faith in Jesus Christ is not simply for you alone. Your faith in Jesus Christ has a blessing, has an impact and a blessing upon other people. Especially if these other people are unbelievers. Think about this, simply praying for people, simply praying for others, has a powerful impact on your loved ones who do not know Jesus Christ. And if that is all you ever do, that may be enough. But you also have the ability, you have this unique ability as the sons and daughters of God to show them grace. You have the ability to to demonstrate to them, to convey to them, to be instruments of grace to these people who do not know it and cannot receive it from the world. They will not get it in any other place. The world tells them that they must earn any favor that they receive. But you can tell them that they cannot earn the favor of God. But that they can receive it as a free gift if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to pray that the Lord would make us as compassionate toward others as this Roman centurion was to his servant. Now before I move on to the next section, there is something that I, should, I feel as though I should address. And this is a, a, a little bit off of the beaten path. But this section that we have just covered is sometimes has in uh, recent years uh, been used as an apologetic for uh, an agenda which does not fit with the orthodox interpretation of Scripture. Some of you have, may have seen in the Dallas and Fort Worth area uh, billboards that say something to the effect of Jesus affirmed a gay couple. And then they quote this passage, uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. They quote it, or they, they, they reference it at least. And maybe you've seen this and you go, what, what, passage, what, what passage is that? And you go back and you look and you say, how on earth is this an affirmation of a gay relationship, of a homosexual relationship? Well, the problem here, there's nothing in the Greek manuscript to suggest that this was a homosexual relationship, first of all. There's one word uh, that is focused upon. And it can mean either boy or it can mean servant. Uh, It's different from the the Greek word for bondservant, which is used frequently in the New Testament. There's 24 uses of this word in the New Testament, and the vast majority of those uses are uh, uh, used in reference to a servant. 
over and over again. Not one single time is any connotation of a homosexual relationship intended there. Nothing is implied. What has happened here is that people are taking the very word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, which we have dropped to large effect in the United States, in this nation. We've dropped our weapon. And when a soldier drops his weapon in front of an enemy, the enemy will pick it up. And it doesn't matter whether they know how to use it properly or not, they will attempt to use it. And that is how God's word is being used in this instance. And so I'd ask you to be very careful. Jesus Christ will not contradict his word. Though he does not deal specifically with the sin of homosexuality in the Gospels, he does not specifically speak against it. He will not contradict those passages of Scripture which do condemn the sin. But I should also remind you that homosexuality is a sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. It is a sin. It is a sin which needs to be repented of just as any other sin needs to be repented of. And we would do well, even as we consider uh, the way this passage may be used by others, we would do well to have compassion on those who struggle with this sin. We would do well uh, to demonstrate the grace of Jesus Christ to them and to show them that it is not enough merely to be tolerated It is not enough merely to to have this sin whitewashed over and say, oh, it's okay. You're acceptable in God's sight. They need to repent and be forgiven. This is what we have to offer as God's people, as God's children. We can offer this. The world cannot. All the world can do is take God's word and warp it and change it and use it in a way in which it was never intended to be used. Well, let's turn now and look at verses 14 and 15. Blessings on family. Well, the verses that we've just looked at, 5 to 13, they, uh, they uh, uh, show clearly that Jesus was welcoming to Gentiles. He welcomed them into his kingdom because of their faith. And he went so far as to say that Jews would be cast into outer darkness while Gentiles will feast with the patriarchs of Israel because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that God has abandoned Israel. It does not mean that he's just cast them off. And the fact is that Jesus' ministry is primarily a ministry to the Jewish people. Only incidentally does Jesus minister to Gentiles. That will come later. The Apostle Paul, Barnabas, even Peter will minister to the Gentiles. Jesus is concerned with his people, with the Jewish people. Well, the next healing uh, that Matthew records is the healing of the Apostle Peter's mother-in-law. Peter was a Jewish man who was the first, along with his brother Andrew, to be called as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And John chapter 1, uh, verse 44, tells us that Peter was originally from the town of Bethsaida, which is just to the east of, of Capernaum on the shore of Galilee, on that northern shore of Galilee. But he now lived in Capernaum. He now lived there with his wife and with his mother-in-law. And verse 14 says that Jesus entered Peter's house and saw that Peter, uh, Peter's mother-in-law was sick, that she was lying sick with a fever. Now, D.A. Carson says that, that malaria might have been the cause for this woman's fever. But whatever the cause was, in the ancient world, a fever was considered to be a very serious illness. They did not have uh, uh, fever-reducing uh, medicines that we have today. Uh, fever was serious. 
and the symptom of, of fever that was often, often accompanied some sort of infection, uh, many times this would lead to a person's death. Now there were times when people approached Jesus asking to be healed, and there were other times when Jesus found a sick person, they found them, and without being asked, he healed them. Peter's mother-in-law, like the centurion's servant, was not healed because of her faith. She was healed because of Peter's faith, because of her proximity to this disciple, her relationship with him. And verse 15 says that Jesus, he reached out and he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. Now we have a very difficult time understanding how God works within covenant families. We have a difficult, difficult time understanding how, how the Lord works within the structure of the family. But he has ordained families as a basic unit of society. Uh, he has ordained marriage to be one of those, those covenant, uh, excuse me, those creation ordinances. And he builds up his people, he builds up his kingdom through families. And so uh, we don't necessarily understand this, but this uh, is an example of how the Lord works through families. We take for granted what a tremendous blessing it is to be born into a Christian household and what a blessing it is for our children to be a part of a Christian family. Because you see, being a part of a Christian household makes each of us the recipient of immeasurable blessings. These blessings are poured out upon us, whether we realize it or not. Now, Peter's, wife, Peter's wife's mother might have died from this illness that was causing her fever, but because God had sovereignly placed her in Peter's household, she received divine blessing, and she was healed. The sin of Israel... And the reason Jesus spoke so strongly in the previous verses was that they had received great blessing, wonderful blessings from the Lord, but they did not truly believe in him. Israel had been given a land flowing with milk and honey because of God's promise to Abraham. God sent prophets to Israel to speak God's word to them. And his word had been permanently recorded on parchment for the benefit of his people so they would have it before them. They could have it read to them. They could hear it. They could study it. Well, they had all these blessings and many, many more as the people of God. But as always is the case with sinful human nature, they came to see these blessings as a right rather than as a privilege. They saw them as something that they had earned rather than as a precious gift of the Lord. Well, in spite of Israel's sin... Jesus continued to bless them. In spite of Israel's sin, Jesus labored among these people for three years. When he was rejected time and again. And as he ministered to these people, as he ministered uh, to Israel, he ministered to Peter's mother-in-law. He blessed her by healing her. He gave her health. And what was her response? How did... How did uh, Peter's mother-in-law responds. She responded immediately by getting up and serving Jesus. Re when presented with the truth of who Jesus is, in all of his divine power and glory, we have two options. There are two things we can do. We can reject him. We can reject him, which is what many uh, in Israel did in that day, and many do today. Or we can embrace him in faith. And when we embrace Jesus Christ in faith, the only response, the only option that we have to Jesus' blessing is to immediately begin serving him. To immediately uh, begin walking in, in obedience to everything that Jesus has commanded. To serve him, to serve his people, to serve others who do not know him. 
This is our response to the blessing and the grace that we have received. Let's turn now and look at verses 16 and 17, the purpose of Jesus' ministry. Even though Jesus tried to maintain a low profile, even though he commanded the leper not to go and, and tell uh, what, had, what he had, had, had been done to him, even though he tried to uh, keep things uh, uh, out of the spotlight, word of his miraculous healings inevitably spread. People uh, found out about what he had done. And so you see in verse 16, it says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. At the end of this chapter, Matthew will go into more detail about uh, healing, Jesus healing someone who was, or in fact, two men who were possessed by demons. Here he mentions it only briefly. But these uh, sicknesses, these oppressions, the uh, demon possession, they're symptoms of, of the problems of the world. They're symptoms of the fallen nature of this world. And we've gotten so used to the fallen world that we take it for granted. We don't even notice it anymore. It's normal to us. We forget it's fallen. But sickness and disease and oppression, these are reminders to us that though God created the world good, and he created man very good, we have fallen far from that. And we're now in need of rescue. We're in need of salvation. When Jesus came and began preaching the gospel, when he began healing the sick and depressed, he was giving notice that this world that had fallen under Satan's power when Adam sinned and fell, he was giving notice to Satan that he was coming back in power, that he was coming back, and that Satan's reign was coming to an end. Sin and its effects cannot stand before Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living and true Son of God Most High. And so Jesus is demonstrating the power of God's kingdom to people who have been long afflicted by the kingdom of darkness. Well, now the Holy Spirit who is working through the Apostle Matthew, who is, who is breathing out through the Apostle Matthew, makes it clear that Jesus' healings were not an end of themselves. They, they were not the end of uh, or the purpose of what Jesus was doing. They served a greater purpose than causing a person's sickness or oppression to go away. In verse 17, Matthew translates Isaiah 53, verse 4, directly from the Hebrew. He does not use the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. He goes straight to the Hebrew. And he translates it this way. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The real problem that humanity faces is not physical illness. This is not what Matthew is speaking of here. It's not physical disease. It's spiritual illness, it's spiritual disease, it's spiritual decay, it's sin. That's the real problem. And Jesus did not come merely to approve of sinful behavior or to show uh, how we may be tolerant of it. He didn't come just to gloss it over and say everything's okay. If that were the case, if Jesus had, had come to say that your sinful behavior and my sinful behavior is acceptable in God's sight... He would have simply told them that they were okay. He didn't need to die on the cross. He didn't need to suffer the punishment for our sins. But by healing people of their sicknesses, Jesus showed that there is something deeply wrong with human beings. The need to be healed 
is evidence that we are in trouble, <laughs> that we have, gr- we have a grave problem. The need to be healed shows that we are dead in sin and trespasses. And by healing them, he demonstrated not only that he can heal these physical sicknesses, these physical illnesses, illnesses, but also that he has the power to forgive sins. He has the power to take away the sins of the world. Well, Jesus took our illnesses, he took your illnesses, he took my illnesses, and he bore them on the cross, in his body, in his own flesh. And the cross alone is enough to show us how serious this problem of sin truly is. If God could simply overlook it, if he could simply wave it away by his hand, Jesus Christ did not need to come in the flesh and die on the cross. But God is holy. And sinful human beings would be burned up, would be consumed by his glory, unless something is done to change our condition. That is why Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, had to come and he had to die so that all who embrace him in faith, who call out to Jesus Christ, who repent of their sins, all would be saved from their sin. And all of us would be declared righteous in God's sight, not for any righteousness that we possess on our own, not for any good works that we have done, but be declared righteous for Jesus Christ's righteousness which has been imputed to us. Jesus Christ's righteousness, which comes as a result of his perfect obedience and his perfect righteousness. Jesus alone has the power to heal. But more importantly, Jesus has the power to forgive sins. And all that is required of sinful people like you and me is to repent of our sins and to believe in Jesus Christ. And God promises in his word that we will be saved. This is a promise that we, we poor sinners, can believe and count on. Let us go before the Lord now in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you that you have raised up stones that you, O Lord, have made uh, we who are dead in trespasses and sins alive in Christ Jesus, that you have adopted us as sons and daughters of God Most High. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray that when our faith is weak and when we suffer from the effects of sin, that you would make us strong and heal us. Call us, Lord, to renewed obedience and to continued faithfulness to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.